It's time for security now. Steve Gibson's here, but there's another Java exploit. How could this be? How could this be? We'll also talk about his favorite new sci-fi for the year uh, so far. And uh, a little Bitcoin conversation. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 401, recorded April 24th, 2013. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 166. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today. Visit GoToAssist.com and use the promo code SECURITY. And by Carbonite. Automatically and continually back up your computer files to the cloud whenever your computer is connected to the Internet for only $59 a year. And there are business plans at one low flat rate as well. Try it free right now at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code security now. You'll get two bonus months with purchase. And by Rackspace, the open cloud company. At Rackspace, build what you want, where you want, how you want. It all backed by their world-renowned fanatical support try it today download the open cloud at rackspace.com slash open it's time for security no the show <laughs> that protects you that's how the song goes isn't it security now the show that really prote- is sort of a long fade out no. and sort of chor- chorusy sort of effect too it's you know nice. it's fun. steve gibson's here the explainer in chief the host of our show man at i just happen to be present for this one it's amazing i turn on the mic and yeah. there he is uh, every every Wednesday, just you're you're there, but uh, we've been using that same theme song now for 401 episodes. I've and com- why change it? It's just fantastic. Yeah, I mean it's it's identified with the show. I mean, I suppose we could update it. It is six seven years old now, but uh, why change no. it? Why no. change it? Um, Steve, today's a Q and A episode. Yes, it is. We've got uh, a typical weekly roundup of interesting events that have occurred a little bit of follow-up from our listeners about their experiences with pro xpn and uh uh somebody's 85 year old mother had her laptop saved by you know what and uh and then a bunch of questions so the great podcast i set up my 80 year old mother this morning you know she's visiting this month it's funny i was thinking about your 85 year old mother yeah this guy was talking about what a super techie his was and i thought oh just like leo yeah Mom's really uh, quite good at this. I set her up with Skype. So on her uh, on her new uh, Galaxy Note 2 and her iPad, and we're going to put it on her laptop. And uh, I have it on my phone. And she said, wait a minute. I mean, we... She said, why do people have telephones? I said, that's a good question, Mom. You notice I don't have a phone. <laughs> oh. And you know, it's true. Landlines really are disappearing. Yeah. The, the, those days the, are. The only reason I said she should probably have a landline is for 911. Especially as an elder, you know, you want to make sure that if you, if you, you know, you you can't talk, you can pick up nine one one and go, huh, and and they know where you are. Well, I still have a fax machine, and I've got. Oh, that's good. You have a heart attack, you're going to fax them. I. 
<laughs> Wait a minute, a fax is coming in. It looks like there's an emergency. Well, there was an emergency. <laughs> it's funny because I've, I've kept my line because I really want the higher quality. But when you're right. talking to somebody on the other end who's always on a cell phone, well, there's the problem. Cell phones sound terrible. But Steve, notice how high the quality is on Skype. I mean, it's better than phone. Oh. And you know, it is. It's, all it's of the great. carriers are now introducing, uh, some of them call it HD voice. They're going to be using uh, LTE to do higher bit rate uh, voice uh, on cell phones. Uh, yes. I think T-Mobile is the first to launch this, to run, roll this and out. You, and, and, it, and you know, that's all being funded by what they charge for text messages, yeah. which is the <laughs> most a- ridiculous profit. I mean, it's zero bandwidth required for a text message. If, if you Yet, pay 20 you know, cents a text message, which is the oh, going you rate. Went over your, you went over your limit. It's $1,500 $1, oh a megabyte. A megabyte. Uh, <laughs> but most people now have uh, unlimited text. And that's what's happening is with Apple Messages and Facebook Messenger, um, people are using their data now for messaging and uh i yep. think that that business is almost gone i really do for yep. uh, the phone companies so question and answer we've got news to talk about yep and um I'll <laughs> java at the top again but go oh, ahead come on really oh i know yep adam gaudiak's at it again my mom um said uh somebody sent me um some flash in my yeah something called a, a flash says I need a flash video on my email and I want to watch it and I said mom there's a reason Apple does not put flash on that computer I would probably forego it if you could possibly live without that video which is probably spyware anyway yep. our show today brought to you by go to assist let me tell you that's another thing I'm I set up on my mom's computer uh, I've used go to assist with her before this is a very you know she lives across the country so uh, I need to, you know, help her uh, so I can just log in with GoToAssist. It's nice. I can do unattended remote support. For years, GoToAssist has been the remote support leader. They're now 10-plus years in the business. And uh, according to one of the, uh, I think it's Gartner, they're the number one remote support solution. But they've gotten so much better. And really, it's not something I would need with my mom, but it might be something you would need if you're in the IT or support business, particularly if you're an independent IT guy like our own Russell Tammany, and you want to get into what they call managed support or managed service providers, where you provide support for a lot of people. Russell's three-man shop supports over 355 different companies. How can you do that? Well, it's a product like this. In fact, we set him up with this, and he's just loving it. He pays a lot more for a product that doesn't do nearly as much. We're moving him over to go to assist. Here's what you want to know about it. First of all, I'm going to let you try this free for 30 days. So if you're in supporter IT, you want to, you definitely want to take advantage of that offer. There's the remote access, live support to a PC or a Mac and mobile devices, even uh, go mobile with apps for iPad and Android devices. So you can you really have you know you can be on the road and supporting people. Uh, you can access and control unattended computers, centrally managed teams and accounts. The remote support is just superb and has been getting better and better. Of course, it's from Citrix. I mean, these guys invented remote access. Now they've added two things. Service desk, so you can track and resolve issues. They've got a full ticketing system, but also release and configuration management. You can have your own branded self-service portal. It's, you know, it's a white label for you. Remote support sessions can be started directly from tickets. And then there's the monitoring. I just think the monitoring is super cool. Uh, you you start by running the GoToAssist uh, crawler on your client's network. It detects not only all the hardware and everything attached, printers, everything, but also all the software. You have a full inventory of everything, PCs, Macs, network equipment, software, everything. 
Then you can set up tracking. They uh, they have pre-built and you can customize uh, dashboards as well with charts to show things like network f- performance, even things like, you know, hard drive uh, uh, space and a toner cartridge uh, and stuff like that. You can set up alerts over IM, SMS, uh, email, so that you know proactively when something's going wrong. You really, it turns you into a support hero because... You know, you're the guy who swoops in and fixes things before they even know there was a problem. This is just great. Now, there's three different modules, and, uh, you know, you buy each one individually. But with our 30-day trial, you can try all three free right now. Just use the promo code SECURITY. Make sure you check all three boxes so you get a good month to test this out. Where it says promo code there, click that link and then type in S-E-C-U-R-I-T-Y. I don't have to tell you how to spell security. I spelled it wrong, of course. So security that way steve gets credit go to assist.com what a great solution for somebody who wants to be a support hero steve gibson's our hero the king of security and privacy let's get some java news now okay so we have good news which is the first use of the non-auto run features in the latest version of Java, which it's good that they put in because we've already found a need for them, unfortunately. It's been a week, and our intrepid security uh, pioneer, Adam Gaudiak, who is we've spoken of many times, is a CEO and founder in Poland of Security Explorations, and that's certainly what he does. He made a post on Monday to the full disclosure mailing list, which is where he puts his stuff, saying, quote, it can be used to achieve a complete Java security sandbox bypass oh, on a target system. Criminally. Successful exploitation in a web browser scenario requires proper user interaction. A user needs to accept the risk of executing a potentially malicious Java application when a security warning window is displayed. So so, th- so it's good news. I mean, first of all, yes, there are more problems with Java. No one expected that there weren't going to be. Even, even Oracle said two weeks ago, or one, wait, one week ago, that they had, there were still unpatched problems, but as far as they knew, they were not being exploited. So Adam found yet another new problem, sent proof of concept code to Oracle, in order for them to to be able to duplicate it and ultimately fix it. So so it's a problem that there's this bypass. Um I'm here I'm hearing myself back, Leo, which never happens. Uh John, I don't hear it. Uh, Steve says he's hearing an echo come back to him. I thought well I could go through the whole show. No, no, no. Have you heard it the whole time myself. or it just started? Well, just while I was talking now. Now it's gone. It's gone now. It's not us. It's nothing huh. we're doing. Okay. You don't have your, uh, you don't have Twit live streaming somewhere, do you? No, nothing's changed. Must have been here. this little Skype, Skype. Uh, yeah. Okay. Wait, but Tony's anyway. running out. Hold on. Let's make sure it's not on the stream. Do you hear it on the stream? No. Must have been just something in your internal. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Okay. No problem. So, um, so I, I thought I wanted to take this moment though to talk about sandboxing because, because. Remember that the fundamental problem with sandboxing is that we are we're trying to constrain something powerful 
inside an artificial barrier. So the the challenge is not to let this too powerful thing outside. So we're seeing now the problems with Java are ways to penetrate the sandbox, which we might be tempted to say, well, okay, so what's the point of having it? Except one of the things that has happened that is something you don't notice until it's been a while is all PDF exploits instantly ended when Adobe added the sandbox to the PDF format. So there is an example of a very, I mean, a truly successful change, which I want to acknowledge because it's important for security theory. And also, you know, we've beaten up on Adobe so much over the years. You know, this made a difference. We were talking about, you know, PDF exploit after PDF exploit. I mean, it was what Java has become a year ago. And it was the instant that they announced their sandboxing technology, PDF exploits just vanished. That we we haven't spoken of one for quite a while, and it was that event. So you know, tip of the hat to Adobe for doing it. It certainly took them a long time, and they resisted. You know, probably just natural hubris, believing that oh well, we'll just get these last few bugs fixed, and then we'll be okay. <laughs> of course, uh-huh. yeah. But yay for the sandbox in in uh, in Reader and Acrobat because it has made all the difference. Um, and I would just say that you know, Java is dramatically more complex, dramatically bigger. I mean, it is a full strength, full function language. And, you know, the idea of hosting that on a browser is insane. And although I don't have it in my notes here, I have picked up on some little blurbs that, for example, the Scandinavian countries that had been strong users of Java, for example, we had a lot of feedback from listeners who say, oh, my bank requires me to use Java um, they're, the banks are dropping it. They are saying, okay, good, good, you know, good, good. browsers are becoming Java hostile. The security community is Java hostile. We need to reimplement this in some other platform. It strikes me that uh, Java feels old-fashioned when you see it at a bank. I mean, it's just, it just feels like an old-fashioned thing. Well, it, it's got a great place for multi-platform right. desktop applications. Minecraft. There, it's great. Yes, yeah. there it makes sense. But, you know, not not on a web browser. That's just the wrong place. And this really annoyed me. Uh, I picked up the news uh, from the Commissioner of Data Protection and Freedom uh, of Information in Hamburg, Germany. Did you see this little blurb about no. Germany uh, slapping Google? Oh, they, I did, yeah. They slap them all yeah. the time. Well, this was, of course, we, and the reason I'm bringing this up is we've covered it so extensively. That this was the inadvertent collection of unencrypted Wi-Fi data by Google's Street View cars as they roamed around Germany. Right. And, well, all of Europe and, actually, and the U.S., I mean, everywhere. And, and we know, we absolutely know that this was inadvertent. We, we, the forensic studies were done. We talked to the guy who... Well, I mean, people talked to the guy who grabbed the code out of the open source community, dropped it in because it, it did more than what he needed, but also what he needed. And it happened to also be logging all of the Wi-Fi packets. And some of them happened to be encrypted when people were broadcasting. I mean, they were broadcasting their right, data right. in the clear. Right. So, 
you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, we know that Google, this wasn't some scheme. This was just inadvertent. So, oh, the good news is German law prohibited a fine of more than 145,000 euros, which is currently $189,000 U.S. And what annoyed me was that this Johannes Kaspar said that the fine was too was far too small to act as a deterrent. Oh, yeah. It's cigarette money for Larry Page. Uh, it's nothing. Well, it, it, yeah, it's point. Zero 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 two percent of they make, Google's. They make that in an hour. Google's ten point seven billion dollar net profit for twenty twelve. Maybe ten minutes even. But, I don't, I don't but know. But the notion, the notion that a fine would be a deterrent, right. suggests that Google wanted to right. do this, no. and now, ooh, it was too expensive. For us to do that, what? No, anyway, it's ridiculous. Just, Europe doesn't. No. The, the Europeans, in particular, the Germans, do not like Google, and they're very privacy. Uh, uh, you know, and this is where sometimes you can go too far on the privacy. Well, thing. I'm glad that Europe is as privacy. Oh yeah, concerned as they are because. But let's I be realistic. I wish the U.S. were more. Right. But so if any of that leaks over here, that would be good. Yeah. But this is just ridiculous. I mean, this far. is, I mean, I'm sure he's a bureaucrat. He has no idea about the technology. Right. And he assumes that it was some plot on Google's part to, you know, collect this data, which they have no, they have no interest in whatsoever. We know that. You know, the, the German Bundestag voted to prevent uh, Google from linking to newspapers. The newspaper publishers were complaining mm -hmm. that Google is stealing yeah. their content by putting them in its search results. and that <laughs> After they put it up on the web. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of unclearness about this whole thing, I think. Yeah. Would you like anyone to find your <laughs> well, article? that's the problem. And see your ads yeah. on your website? Rupert Murdoch said the same thing, and he oh. blocked Google from searching uh, his properties, I think, in the U.K. And uh, after about a year, he said, you know, that never mind. <laughs> Please, it didn't work please, out so well. Please index <laughs> our sites. Please. We beg of you. Yeah. So speaking of Google, uh, some very clever malware authors managed to sneak some bad stuff into the Google Play uh, app store. Uh, this came to light late last week. Apparently... No one's exactly sure what the count is. Somewhere between 2 and 9 million malicious apps were downloaded. And the way this was done was clever. Th th this was in 32 apps spread across four different developers. Oh, I didn't they realize were, this. Oh. Yes, they were always intended to be malicious. But they weren't when they submitted them. So individually they weren't or did they update them? None of exactly. They updated them. Uh, they waited months, so they submitted them to the store. Thirty-two different apps, all submitted to do you know random, uh, presumably useful things. I mean, apparently nine million people thought so, up to nine million, and then they bided their time for several months. Never mind. And then that was, uh, that was my yabba dabba do. <laughs> and then was that Homer? Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm so sorry. That's all right. <laughs> and then they, a after a few months, they slipped in malicious updates that were causing those apps to contact remote servers every four hours to send back harvested data 
including the device's phone numbers and the IMSEI numbers, mm. which we were talking about last week. You peel the label off the back of that phone um, because also it's you know it's built in. Um, and in some cases, they were the they were also causing their the devices to then download the Alpha SMS Trojan, which sends text messages on behalf of the user to numbers that incur charges, so, you know, heavy charges. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting. So here, so basically, what's happening is you know the bad guys are smart. We we know the bad guys are essentially the same people as the good guys. They're just bad. So they're as smart. <laughs> they have the so, same intellectual capacity. Exactly. Just a, exactly. a moral compass that is lacking. They they took the other branch yes. in the road. Yes, the fork in the road. Um, yes. And so so we have you know the 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 spy versus spy sort of scenario. The the white spy and the bad spy. And so. The bad guys look at the security models. They look at the protections and the barriers. And their whole mission is, hmm, how can we sneak past this? And so, oh, let's put out a bunch of good apps and then they'll go bad after a while. After we've built the trust of users and, and acquired a reputation and no one's had a problem with them. And so, so this, you know, this subverts things like the how long has this been published because we tend to mistrust brand new things. So let it age for a while. So we, we, we trust it. And, oh, look how many people have downloaded it. It must be okay. So they used all of that, that sort of natural reputation that apps get over time just by waiting, and then they slipped the bad stuff in. Of course, Google immediately yanked them as soon as this this malicious behavior was detected. But they had their day; they had their fifteen minutes. So I thought that was interesting. I mean, yeah. it's like where there's a will, there's a way. Now, really, really good news. Not not only just granularly good news, but industry wide, and. So we're tempted to use the acronym OTP-MFA, which is actually two acronyms. OTP is one-time password, and MFA is multi-factor authentication. Because we had last week Microsoft announcing that they were adding two-factor authentication to their stuff, Microsoft account, whatever that is. Um, And then just in the news, I think it was yesterday, or maybe today, this morning, Twitter has said, uh, I guess they, they posted a job, uh, a job listing in February specifically saying we want somebody with expertise in multi-factor authentication. Now, what's really encouraging is that Microsoft's multi-factor authenticator, you know, they, of course, have one for Windows Phone, which is called Microsoft Authenticator, it is standards compliant. There's an RFC 6238, which is the which is the specification for a time varying one-time password. And we talked about this years ago. I mean, here I'm ah, here I'm holding up my still going strong little little gray football that we talked about, uh, which is at a time based. Um, multi-factor authenticator and right now i just push the button it says 901668 which i can tell everybody because that you know it expires in 30 seconds and uh then it's going to change to something else um so 
Um, the good news is we are, I mean, this is really beginning to happen. We're, we've got Google. There are Bitcoin exchanges. Facebook, Yahoo, Amazon Web Services, Dropbox, DreamHost, Blizzard's Battle.net, Valve's Steam, and LastPass. Not only are they their time-based one-time tokens, one-time passwords, but they are all based on the same standard. So what I'm excited oh, about... Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, they are all cross-compatible. You can use Google's Authenticator to log into Microsoft. Yeah, I do uh, that. And, uh, and I use Authenticator for LastPass for Google, obviously. Uh, yep. That's really handy. Yes. And so, you know, we talked a long time ago about the problem, you know, we called it the key ring problem of needing to have a whole bunch of different key ring or a key ring full of individual tokens, one for each service. And we were praying that that, that was not going to happen. The model that VeriSign worked on was their proprietary model where they would they only they would know what the serial number was of your token and so and they would provide the authentication service what i remember hearing was they were extremely expensive mm -hmm. to use i mean yeah you got verisign's name and everything branded all over your stuff but ouch pricey yeah, yeah. um so here we finally have moved to i mean this is exactly what we want which is an an open platform uh it, it's it's device based in microsoft's case they will send you a one-time password via text message, or you can use the authenticator. That's great. And there are there are also some very nice-looking iOS apps. I've not, I can't speak for the Android. I haven't gone over and looked. But for example, I just was poking around to see what was out there. There's something called HDE OTP for iPhone and iPad. What I like about it is it, it shows you a screen of all of your different one-time passwords all changing at the same time so you can sort of scroll through the various the the, the various um uh accounts that you have established and it, it shows the, sort of a little meter with the one-time password expiring how much longer yeah. it will be valid That's what google authenticator does too yeah so i and have my last pass and my google uh, in there and there's a little clock running out and then there'll be a new one in a few seconds right um, i really yeah but so what's so nice is that these things are... So this are, is an open standard. I didn't realize that. That's what's so cool. So RFC everybody should use this. To, yes. In fact, I looked around for any announcement about what Twitter was doing, and I couldn't find anything. It's probably a little premature, but they'd be crazy. And, and that's my point, is with this much inertia now, why would anybody create their own non-standard one-time password solution right they're just there's no need for it good i hope so. uh, it, yeah yeah well it's so, also good for us because i don't want to carry multiple dongles or have multiple apps i can have one right. app that has all my one-time passwords that's beautiful right right anyway i'm i'm just i'm delighted because this is this is a great uh, a great development now it's worth mentioning that that um it's not a perfect solution that is you still have the problem of real-time interception. Um, in fact, that's why I deliberately read that number out, was I'm sure people are going, wait a minute, Steve, you just gave us your number for the next 30 seconds. And I just well, gave out my LastPass and Google numbers, too, <laughs> on screen. So, 
So that's an example of the remaining vulnerability in this system. We've seen instances where a CAPTCHA can be cracked in real time by, you know, sending it off somewhere to a CAPTCHA cracking farm or people who are needing to to solve CAPTCHAs for some other purpose. And, and so there and, and that's an instance where a bot is essentially able to use a human as its worker in order to solve a problem that it can't solve. It is possible to do, I mean, in theory, to do a real-time man-in-the-middle crack where you would intercept somebody's submission of their currently authentic and correct one-time password and block their submission, log on as them, and, you know, and, and grab their session. So it's, you know, it's, it's not absolutely perfect, but it is a huge step forward. Because, I mean, for example, it completely, as long as there aren't other problems, if people's passwords get loose, well, that's no longer enough. To, you know, if, an email account and a which is typically your 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 um your uh, username and you know account identifier and your password historically that's all that's been needed to break in so we understand that this raises the bar uh in a very useful fashion and yay you know we got a standard which yeah, is god i hope so, twitter does this i hope they're sincere about or this isn't just a rumor they have to yeah. no no twitter's definitely doing it Good. but question is will they be compliant and i can't imagine they that they be. would like make make people go out and you know yeah. get their own app that would be just crazy at this point crazy and and I, and i think at, we, at the, my point is we have so much inertia now that it's a fait accompli essentially it's it's going to happen this is this is the way we do this right um also there was some concern and i think it was already out by last podcast but i didn't have a chance to get to it i wanted to address it and that's the concern about a design flaw in one password which is you know a very very, very popular, popular yeah. password manager it, it's an it, it's interesting to discuss here because of what the problem was um the guy who is developing the Hashcat system. We've talked about him in the past. It's uh, OCL Hashcat hyphen plus. This is the the GPU based, massively fast, you know, password cracking hashing system, which supports an incredible variety of hashes and and uh, crypto standards. He was he decided to add support for TrueCrypt cracking in his hashcat system now what that means for for us is that there will be an open source brute forcing technology specifically designed for truecrypt but truecrypt is only as strong as the password we've spoken of that often you know there was the famous case of somebody in brazil the brazilian authorities were unable to to crack the drive because it was protected with truecrypt so they sent it up to the FBI here in the States and the FBI couldn't make it any more of it because the person had used a really, really strong password. So so the fact that we're going to get cracking for TrueCrypt is is interesting and it, it advances Hashcat's breadth of coverage, but it doesn't, it's not a concern unless you've got a, a, a too short TrueCrypt password. This, would this is true in general, isn't it? I mean, there yes, are exactly. rainbow tables and other s- systems that will crack bad passwords, but a yes. long, random, secure password, the kind generated 
by one password or by uh, yes. key, uh, LastPass or KeePass, you'll be fine. Right. And so I wanted to I, I wanted to make sure, though, because when I talk about, you know, true crypt cracking, there will be people who will like, oh, my God, true crypt has been cracked. It's like, no, no, no. It's just, you know, it's just making more available the technology for doing that. But that's been around already. So um, one of the true crypt algorithms, which is which famously protects TrueCrypt is AES, the, you know, Rheindahl cipher. And uh, this developer did not have support for AES in his GPU technology. So he said, okay, I got I to gotta add GPS cipher handling, which means, for example, the key setup for AES, where you take a small key, the AES 128-bit key, and expand it to much more data because each round of the AES cipher uses a different chunk of key-derived material. So he had to write a bunch of GPU accelerator code specifically to support that, which he had never done before. So he said, okay, if I'm going to do that, what's around that uses AES that would be simpler to do before I tackle the whole TrueCrypt problem. And he said, oh, 1Password. 1Password is a pretty simple, straightforward encryption system. It uses PBKDF2, the password-based key derivation function, in like, you know, many thousands of iterations. So it's been well-designed by guys who know crypto. And what that produces is an AES key. So he already, oh, and it uses SHA1, um, the, the the hash in, in its PBKDF2 algorithm. He already had SHA1 programmed on his GPU. So this was beautiful because to do true, true crypt, he needed all kinds of more stuff. And he thought, okay, I'll, I'm going to get the AES code all working just using one password. That caused him to look deeply into the algorithms that one password was applying and he found kind of a mistake. The idea was that that one password would verify a password was correct by running the the submitted the user submitted password thousands of times through the PBKDF2 algorithm to strength to so-called password strengthening, basically to slow down any brute force attack. But they needed a 128-bit key for AES and another 128-bit initialization vector for the cipher block chaining that they use. Well, that meant they needed 256 bits. But SHA1 produces 20 bytes, which is only 160 bits. So you needed to use SHA, the, the SHA1 hash twice. Well, what it turned out was that it actually wasn't necessary to, in order to check whether a password was correct, to do the entire setup for decrypting the password. And so essentially what this news was of a design flaw amounts to maybe one or two bits 
of entropy lost, meaning maybe it's half or a quarter as hard to brute force crack the password. And in practice, that means that it probably won't take you 376 years to crack it. It might only take you 192 or maybe 96. People vary in their estimations. The point is, it hasn't dramatically hurt one password. It, it, there was, in fact, a discovery that due to the way they were authenticating passwords, it wasn't as hard to, if from, a, from a brute force cracking standpoint as it, as it was believed to be, but only by a factor of maybe either two or four depending upon some optimizations that may be available. So it's like, okay, you know, a tempest in a teapot, I think. I mean, they're going to fix it. They've, they've, you know, mostly it was users being worried that this meant one password was, you know, cracked now and dramatically less safe than before. That's not the case. Absolutely not the case. So just a, 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 a bit or two worth of, of strength of strength weakening um, and nothing more than that. So, uh, well, one password users should not worry. Good. And That's a relief. Same, yes, same, same uh, advice always applies as always, which is um, use a good, strong password and, and right. you'll be as safe as you can be. Let the password programs generate the passwords. Although that the, the, the issue with one pass and uh, key pass and last pass is that's the one password you want to memorize. So you don't want to make it too cuckoo. Yes. Yes. Or I, by the or, way, it's working or, great with an experiment with my 80-year-old mom using LastPass. It's working great. And but you helped her to come up with a neat way to remember a cuckoo password. I gave her a mnemonic. Yep. And uh it's not easy, but she can reconstruct the password in her head. Uh she, every so time she, doesn't, she every time. So she doesn't have to yep. memorize it. And I think it's 16 or 20. It's long. That's the nice thing about a good mnemonic. You can make it long. And, I, and as we know, I think we know from your uh, password padding exploits, that longer is better. Yes. 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 Okay, now I have to apologize to the people who were confused, <laughs> and there were some last week, by my, by my um, discussion of the point-to-point tunneling protocol, which... ProXPN supports, in addition to OpenVPN, in the paid-for model. And I should mention that a lot of the other VPN providers do also. And that's the, def- the sort of the de facto protocol that all the mobile devices use. Yeah. Um, but it's not nearly as secure as SSL, which is what OpenVPN uses. And I just, you know, I know that we've talked about it often, and but I didn't say it again last week, and and so that's my apology. Is I I should have explained that when I was talking about, for example, using it to protect yourself at Starbucks, where where whereas you know in an open Wi-Fi environment, if you had no protection, everything you're doing is in the clear. Well, so. Any encryption is way better than none. And PPTP is natively available as the VPN protocol 
you know, in iOS and Android and, and other mobile devices. So you, do, with, you don't have to install anything in order to get it. But we also talked last summer about Moxie Marlin Spike's uh, announcement, and it was in early August, I think, of his Cloud Cracker. And what Cloud Cracker does is you can capture point-to-point tunneling protocol traffic and submit that to you, – you run it through a little open-source app first to extract some of the handshake details that it needs. You submit that to, Cl- to Cloud Cracker along with $200, and, <laughs> a couple, and a couple days later, it will give you back the, the result of essentially cracking – what is a 56-bit DES key. So the problem with PPTP, the point-to-point tunneling protocol, is that it's normal, it's normal encryption technology and, and, and mutual authentication is based on, I mean, it's old. It's, it's NT4 and Windows 98 era. So, you know, I mean, it's not surprising that it's a little creaky, but that's also why it's so... It's so um, ubiquitous. It's available everywhere. But you do need to use it with caution. And so that's the point I wanted to make um, that I should have made last week. And so I apologize to our listeners who said, wait, I mean, I got a lot of mail saying, wait a minute. You said it wasn't safe to use it. Oh, uh, okay. So, right. Um, It's old. And 56 bits is no longer enough protection. And Moxie now demonstrates that for $200, he'll crack it in about a day. Wow. So, so if the model, if the attack model was that all that you, the entire communication session, at least starting at the beginning, because you have to have the, in, the initial handshake, and then you, of course, would want to keep capturing the traffic in order to be, dec- to, be, to be able to decrypt what had happened. If you captured all of that, and then ran it through the the preprocessor and submitted it to a DES cracking system, and there's one online that you can rent for 200 bucks. then a couple days later, you can decrypt that traffic. So, so that's the downside of point-to-point tunneling protocol. But the other thing that came to light that I was not aware of last week, and many people made me aware of it, is that there is an official OpenVPN client from the OpenVPN project on iTunes. And so you can use OpenVPN on your iOS devices uh, and presumably Android, although I haven't looked, um, just as easily as you do use OpenVPN client on your laptops. So there is no need to use point-to-point tunneling protocol and Anyone who is put off by the fact that that their tra- their all their traffic could be captured and could be decrypted in a couple days, um, by all means, open. I'm, I'm. It's definitely. I'm glad that people held me to account for this because you know we've discussed all this before, and I sort of assume that this is, you know, <laughs> some people don't know, listen to every single episode, Steve. Yeah, I, I assume it's in our knowledge base. But anyway, so I should have. <laughs> I should have said it last week, and I apologize for not doing so. Uh, we've had a mixture of feedback. Um, 
I got a lot. A lot. There was a lot of Twitter acti- uh, uh, activity. Someone, uh, Ryan Jones, who who's description calls himself an IT professional from New York City metro- metropolitan area, co-host and producer of the Fifth Down podcast, which I guess that's a football reference. Uh, he said, loving pro XPN, and that's all he said. Um, and then Eric Chavez, uh, who tweets as homesick Texan, uh, he tweeted to the pro XPN people, who, by the way, do answer their Twitter feed. I've been seeing a lot of back and forth chatter with them said, signed up for one year of ProXPN thanks to at Leo Laporte and at SGGRC. So the promo code is good for subsequent renewals. Right. And they responded, yes, it's for subsequent renewals too. And then he said- lifetime promo code. Lifetime ah, And then he said, great speeds so far. Now, I've also heard people say not so great speeds. I've heard, I saw somebody else say that his YouTube seems to be playing much faster through (laughs) Pro XPN. That does not seem right. (laughs) So, you know, your your mileage will vary. (laughs) Right. Um, And I did see some people complaining that the free use was just driving them crazy with with you know dunning them to upgrade to the paid model that's the one complaint that i did mention last week which i did see online in a forum somewhere i've still not had a chance to to play with it myself so you know again it is what it is but uh that's the you know so we've had uh generally positive feedback except that people were saying wait a minute i didn't think pptp was secure and now people know exactly what the nature of its insecurity is. It's way better if you, if, if you don't have open VPN than completely unsecure Wi-Fi in, a, in an open Wi-Fi mode. But if, you know, if you're trading state secrets, you, you know, and where in a mode where your traffic might be captured and you Moxie Spike is going to earn $200 from someone for cracking your traffic, then by all means, it's not safe enough. And I did get a nice follow-up from Shannon Coleman, uh, who said, thanks for the opera suggestion on Security Now. And Shannon said, much better than Chrome, exclamation point, LastPass support with an add-on and native side tab support. Now, I did not know about native side tab support or LastPass, so I'm glad for both. I'm still over here on Firefox and very happy, but... Boy, you know, uh, Opera really did impress me, as I mentioned last I'm week. I'm going to have to try it now after all you've said about it. And this is big. Having LastPass is critical for me. I won't use a browser that yep. can't support LastPass. Nope. It's not possible to yeah. use. <laughs> it's not, yeah. I mean, I don't know what any of my passwords are right. anymore. You're not supposed it's, to. I mean, right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. A little sci-fi break. Oh, my God, Leo, this summer. Oh. It is just a gala of science fiction. I'm just like a pig in you-know-what. I am so happy. I just look at these previews and just think, oh, yes, bring it on. So Friday, uh, Oblivion opened. I've already tweeted twice about it. Is this the Tom Uh, Cruise one? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And... Uh, no spoilers. You will never, ever hear a spoiler from me. You know, and think about it. And when I've been talking about science fiction books that I've loved, I've managed not to give anything away. So um, I loved the movie. I mean, it's not an incredible 
ground shaking, you know, like when when we first saw Star Wars or ET or something. But the Matrix was, that was the one that when I saw that, that okay. I walked out of yes. there, my yes. jaw on the floor, dazed. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So this isn't that. And Morgan it, Freeman's in this one too. But but it's great. I've seen it twice. In fact, what um, now is it based on a sci-fi novel or? No, I asked Jen because um, she generally knows these things, yeah. and and she said no. Uh, and I, I I then spent the next I guess I spent what morning was it? Maybe it was Saturday, reading the negative reviews of the critics, and some people just hated it. And it's like okay, you know, I mean, I understand. I think I, some people seem to have something a problem with Tom Cruise himself. I don't I like don't. Tom Cruise, but I can. But you know, Minority Report was good. He's done yeah. some great sci-fi movies. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't say this is great, but oh, it's a visual feast. It is beautifully visual, and the sound design is really exceptional too. They've got a bunch of drones who just make really wonderful sounds when they're <laughs> you know to sort of you know sort of an advanced R two D two sort of thing. And uh, uh, anyway, I I love I loved it, and about. 30 minutes in, I whispered to Jenny, I said, I'm going to see this again immediately just because I wanted to experience it again. I mean, I'm that way. I own a lot of these movies on disc and I'll own this just because after it's been long enough, I, I will watch it again in the same way that I'll read a book, a sci-fi book that I've already read. I'll read it again just to bask in the, the suspension of disbelief. The so, guy who directed Tron Legacy, which was also beautiful, not a great movie, but beautiful looking did this one uh rotten tomatoes uh 56 from critics that's pretty poor that's a splat 68 percent of users so i think you're not alone i think people liked it better than the critics liked it yeah and it did it did dominate the box office it did just shy of 40 million dollars in its yeah. opening week which is better than both of tom's previous movies combined yeah so i mean it's we, 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 it's like if you don't want to see it, you don't, won't have to wait long for something else really good because Elysium looks fantastic with Matt Damon. We, of course, have Into Darkness. I'm glad the, sci-fi the next... is back. <laughs> I am oh glad God. it's back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and we've got that cool, what is it, the Earth one, uh, Back to Earth or Old Earth or whatever it is. And that's, I think, uh, Will Smith and his son. And, oh, anyway, we, it's going to be a summer of wonderful movies so it's based on but, a graphic novel apparently that the director wrote oh is he the guy who did 300 he is isn't he he does he's the guy who did 300 um it, the chicago sun times says if nothing else oblivion will go down in film history as the movie where tom cruise pilots a white sperm-shaped craft into a giant space uterus oh i was afraid that that was the guy i read that <laughs> on, on, on saturday morning not good richard roper though said it uh, this is the uh, sci-fi movie equivalent of a pretty damn good cover band i don't know what that's mean but he does give it he does like it yeah so here's my point if you uh, uh, and we, we we went with some people who i think are not sci-fi people and they were like eh. and yeah. i just thought afterwards okay well they just don't like science fiction. so you have to I like mean, sci-fi just yeah. drape a phaser over anybody, and I'm happy. Yeah, so see, you know, I like, I love sci-fi. I'm not. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, but you know, it was great. Maybe you people could wait to you know till 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 it comes out in some other format if they're really not avid. Well, but what, was, wait, no, is this a big movie you want to see on a big screen with surround sound and thundering? I, I think so. I th- yeah. I saw it the second time in a smaller theater, 
and I missed the impact of the sound. And I mean, because this was, there is a lot of sound in this. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just think it was a fun. I think it was absolutely worthwhile. Not and, worth waiting then till DVD or whatever they call it. it. Used to be wait for DVD. Now I guess it's wait for Netflix or I don't know, wait for <laughs> on demand. But not worth it. It sounds like. Sounds and did like, you, by the it. way, did you? Did, did you did you see that Netflix has already recouped their entire yeah. two season investment yeah. in House of Cards? So did the stock market. <laughs> oh. uh, Netflix, wow. uh, because they are now have more subscribers than HBO. I think that they have, yes. You know, last summer when Netflix people were really critical of uh, Reed Hastings, uh, the CEO of Netflix, that he made a stupid move by splitting the CD, the DVD by mail from the streaming and. I remember charging that. people yep. extra, and everybody said how stupid they were. I said, "Wait and see." Reed is not well, a dumb man. This is a very, very smart CEO. One of the did, smartest. Didn't they out go there. back on that decision though? They I changed they... it a little bit, but you know what? Do you have DVD by mail with them? No, no, nobody does. No, those those thirty million subscribers streaming. He yeah. was he was pushing, and I think people complained but in the long run they won oh so he was he was trying to move his 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 customer base over to yeah. online the reason uh, is the hollywood uh, folks are squeezing him and won't let him have movies they won't let him have there's a 30 day delay after the movie comes out they're giving it to video uh, to on demand services first blah 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 they were squeezing him and so the dvd by mail business was dying and people said, well, the streaming stuff isn't as good as DVD by mail. So he really needed to – he's pivoted. The company's pivoted. And what they've done is they've become a content creation company and like HBO. Yes. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm a believer. I, I have never given up on them. I always thought their model was very good. Too bad I don't well, buy tech of, stocks. <laughs> House of Cards was great. Wasn't it amazing? I can't wait to see season was, two. Is it out yet? I no, I was so happy that they had a second season already paid for. I mean, I they've already produced it's it. It's done. Kevin Spacey so just, will be on when season two comes out. I've already uh, extracted a promise from our friend, the producer, Dana Brunetti. He said, we'll get <laughs> Kevin on. He's, I tried to get him on when it first came out. He said, you know, he's exhausted. He's on vacation. Would you want to do it when season two comes out? I said, yes. That would be cool. I remember when you had him on Screensavers. Yes, Kevin's a geek. Big fat yeah. geek. He loves his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so energy storage update. Many okay. people Good. also tweeted. <laughs> I need to know about tweeted. this. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what happened was uh, the the publication Nature Communications came out with a an article celebrating a breakthrough in chemical battery storage. So not not supercapacitor, but chemical battery. And I I have and I have read and studied the the complete article. It's titled High Power Lithium Ion Micro Batteries. From interdigitated three-dimensional bicontinuous nanoporous electrodes. Oh, that! Yeah, <laughs> and it's cool. Okay, now, good. Now, what what I love about this is, so the 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 problem with traditional electrochemical batteries is that they are electrochemical. That is the in order in order for them to be charged and discharged, you have to have the migration of physical ions through the electrolyte between the the two the battery's two electrodes. That is physical migration. So it acts so it, it takes time. And that physical migration creates resistance. And so 
So what this what this ends up meaning is that the battery can only be charged and discharged at a certain rate. And if you push it too far, then it begins to get hot. And of course, we've famously seen all kinds of battery explosion problems in over the over the years. That's what happens is these batteries end up being pushed too hard. That's what supercapacitors don't have. Supercapacitors are just two electrodes super close together with as much surface area as possible, and then you just pile on the electrons. So there, there is no, there, by definition, there's no resistance at all. But you're not storing the, the charge electrochemically, you're storing it electrostatically. So just in an electrostatic charge. The problem with supercapacitors is in order to store a lot of power in the capacitor, you need to have a lot of voltage. That is, you, you, you pour the electrons onto one of these plates, pulling them off of the other, which creates a tremendous, a, a tremendous need for there to be essentially like a spark between them. So there's a dielectric which insulates them, and that's the challenge, is, is to have a supercapacitor with a large plate area where the plates are incredibly close together, yet the dielectric strength insulates them against the incredible voltage difference, and that allows them to store power. But when they store that power, it's available virtually instantly. That is, it can. I mean, that's one of the dangers. Is is like it get like when you're driving a car around with supercapacitors, um, you do definitely want to make sure you've got fuses all over the place so that it just doesn't suddenly unload all at once. <laughs> you know, this is, trim- people say, "Oh gosh, well, I'm never going to use it because of that." But all of these systems are, if you think about it, you can't push a car around without a lot of energy stored somewhere, and the sudden release of the energy, whether from gasoline explosion. Or yep. from a sudden discharge of a supercapacitive battery is going to be disruptive to the right. space-time fact, continuum. Yeah, <laughs> there was um, there was a, a car project that uh, Ben Rosen, uh, a famous venture capital guy, uh, uh, invested huge amounts of money in, where their energy storage was a spinning flywheel. <laughs> He right, had it, right. it. He had a flywheel spinning in a vacuum chamber, and he electromagnetic, electromagnetically coupled the the spin so that he would pour he would pour power in and spin this thing up, and then actually run the car on the on the on the mechanically stored energy of the spinning flywheel. And the great problem was. If it ever got loose, it was like a whirling dervish from hell. I mean, it would just chew anything to pieces. Right. And right. so there again. A, it's going to always – It's. I don't care what you use. It's always yes. going to have because you don't move a car around for a good few hundred miles without storing a lot of power, a lot of energy huge, somewhere. A huge amount. Right. right. Okay. So get a load of this. What these guys did was they they – dramatically improved on existing all all existing electrochemical battery technology so this is significant they created electrodes one of the things you need is you need 
electrodes with high surface area. That is, you want you want you want like a um, well, they call it nanoporous. You want think of it sort of like a, an incredibly porous sponge, so that the electrode itself has an, a very very high surface area, so that it's in contact with a large volume of electrolyte. What that means is it, first of all, it lowers the resistance because you've just got so much electrode surface in contact with the electrolyte. And it also means that if you're able to get these electrodes close to each other, that the total electrode distance, the separation is low, that lowers the the ion transit time. Remember, that's the problem with electrochemical cells is they have to physically move ions through this goop. So having them having large surface areas and and closely spaced electrodes solves those problems. So the way they made these is so cool because we can all visualize this. They started with microspheres, uh, polystyrene, like a volume of microspheres held in a, a colloidal suspension. So so just like mixed in a goop are like this these microspheres and they came up with a way of making them self-organize everyone's sort of familiar with like you know when you put billiard balls in a rack how all the balls are able to pack and if you think about it you can pack another layer of spheres exactly on top of that layer and so on so it's possible to create a solid array almost sort of like a crystalline lattice of spheres so what these guys in, in invented was a way of evaporating this the the suspending fluid which contains all these spheres so that as the fluid evaporates the surface tension meniscus at the boundary of the fluid automatically organizes these spheres into a solid array whoa and I know it's so cool. So it works. So now they have that surface a, tension at work. Yes, exactly. Surface tension is your friend. Yeah. So now, so now they have an array of of spheres that are densely packed, touching each other on twelve sides. So it so it's it's intimately arranged. They then they then electrochemically plate this spherical array. So that, and, and when you think about it, if you think of spheres, they're touching, but there's also spaces in between, right? There, there, there's also, there, there's like the non-spherical areas are sort of funky triangular curvy shaped areas, if you can visualize that. That is, you know, all the air, all the air spaces that exists where the spheres are not in this array. So they... They electrochemically plate this array so that so that all of the areas that are that are that are essentially the air get get plated. Then they have a an agent which is able to to dissolve the polystyrene spheres. So after they create and after they plate all of the exposed surface area of the spherical matrix, they then essentially remove the spheres from the middle of it. 
they 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 dissolve the spheres out of it, leaving this amazing. Oh, oh, I I should say one thing. I forgot one one step is when they've got the spherical array, they they heat it up and the spheres soften a little bit, and the so the spheres deform and come into greater contact with each other, um, and that changes the overall shape in a way that. Um, uh, that is beneficial to them. Then they dissolve the spheres out of this, so they end up with what they called a scaffold. If you can picture this, this is this is a scaffolding of the essentially the spherical that the, but now a little bit deformed outlines of the spheres, all interconnected in a solid piece. So it it is a nanoporous mesh. And that is the basis for their electrodes. They then plate one of them with with a, a a negative electrode substance and the other one with a positive electrode substance. They've come up with a production methodology that allows them to do this, you know, in a in a production mode. And they end up with, and this is what's amazing, is electrochemical cells which can charge and discharge at the rate of a supercapacitor and store on the same order of energy. Um, hundreds of times more energy per, per, per volume than traditional lithium-ion batteries. And so it, it, it is a breakthrough. Now, the one glitch <laughs> There is, always is, isn't there? There's always a glitch is it doesn't cycle very well. Um, it, it, if, you, if you charge it and discharge it and charge it and discharge it, when I was, I was all excited as I'm reading the paper, and then it's like, whoa. You know, I mean, it loses like 16% of its capacity after the first cycle, and, and it goes downhill from there. So, so <laughs> this is nice, well, but it works once is what you're saying. Well, today. I mean, this right. is also, you know, they're publishing their research. Um, this is this is like this is a, a, a really interesting, possible to fabricate uh, technology that that outperforms every other. I mean, there have been people who've tried to do nanoporous electrodes of various sorts. This just blows past them all. Right. So this is a huge step forward. What it what it does represent today, it, it is not only more more rapid charging but also much greater total energy density and so there are applications for example think a pacemaker where you want and that's really how they're they're selling this now remember it's called high power lithium ion micro batteries so they're not suggesting that this is going to replace the high end lithium ion cells we have in our electric cars today but they're saying it is today it is vastly superior to existing battery technology for like implantable medical devices where you're not having to charge and discharge on a daily basis so the cycle the cycle life of the battery is not a problem and this allows whole basically it changes the terrain for medical implantable devices and also long-term remote sensors or maybe you know for example satellites where they've got exotic power supplies now that are arguably 
you know, maybe not safe because they typically use radiation sources. You could probably replace them with these kinds of batteries and be, you know, vastly less expensive, lower technology uh, and and also long term sustainable. So very cool. Someday. Yes. So this is just a step forward. And yeah. and, you know, we still don't know whether supercapacitors are going to get there before nanoporous, multidimensional, continuous, spherical derived <laughs> electrode based batteries. But uh, this is a nice step forward. I'm just really and glad any, that, any event- that they're working on this stuff. That's the oh, key. This, they must yes. be, of course. This is huge. Yes. Because we've, we've essentially created, and smartphones are the perfect example, but cars are another really good example, highly sophisticated mobile technology that is outpaced battery technology by a century. Yes. And in fact, the article starts in its abstract at the beginning talking about how, despite the fact that microelectronics has enjoyed incredible uh, you know, scaling factors in in capability and size. But, you know, batteries have not changed all that much. But imagine if they could just solve the cycle life problem, and there's no reason to believe they won't be able to. Imagine and that our smartphones' batteries still well they they charge in a few minutes, and they last a week. I mean, okay, if, and and they're no bigger. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take two. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, I have this phone. I love this phone, but uh, especially because I'm using it so much, it goes half a day. That's no good. No. Yeah, we need to fix that. Yeah. Speaking of fixing that, uh, I got a nice note uh, dated April 10th. So what? Two days ago. Uh, well, wait. except that this is the 24th no. of April. But other than that, yes. Two weeks ago. Welcome to. <laughs> Uh, and I just saw it in my mailbag. He yeah. said, Spinrite saved my 85-year-old mother's laptop. Oh, this is like my he story. Said, yeah. He said, my mother is a true geek grandma. She's been an early adopter of the Internet back in the 90s. So I'm not surprised that I, too, am a geek. I provided the security. I have provided security now some feedback on the topic, and he gives a, a URL. He says he has a, a blog, Healthcare secprivacy.blogspot.com. So I guess uh, healthcare security and privacy. He says, it never is good when a security geek has a family member hit by a security or privacy failure. Any of our listeners know about that. He says, well, it happened. My mom's laptop stopped and would not reboot. Absolutely dead. Being the good geek grandma that she is, off she went to buy a new computer. She was perfectly happy dumping the old computer. She wanted a faster, sleeker, and less noisy computer. She had no backup and actually was okay with the loss of information. Well, I was not satisfied with the lost data. So I got myself a Spinrite license and set it running on her laptop. It found the hard, it found the hard drive and got stuck on... Uh, and got stuck at 0.032%. So clearly right at the front of the drive. He said, I left it run, and it was still running days later. I moved the laptop out to the cooler temperatures of the garage in Wisconsin. Not cold, but floating above freezing. He says, yes, I shut it down to move it. He says, there I left it running and running and running. Four weeks later. Wow. 
It finished. She bought a new computer by this time and has forgotten this other computer for a long time, but okay. He says, yeah, he says, four, four, all caps, weeks later, it finished. It recovered all, all caps, of the photos and documents on her old machine. I delivered them to her last weekend, a full CD-ROM full. Thanks for a fantastic and persistent product. Isn't that awesome? Yep, it is persistent. And sometimes a month isn't is not is like that's nothing. <laughs> it could go for what's the longest you've ever heard of a spinwright running for before it's completed? Well, the problem, Leo, is that if people drop it out of a four story building <laughs> and it and it hits c- cement, yeah, you know that is drops the drive, yeah, you know, and so now it's like it it shakes when the it powers <laughs> up yeah yeah and yeah. you can hear the like the rattly bits inside <laughs> well spin right will try but you know and it'll try till you say okay i don't know <laughs> this is not going anywhere but there are cases where it's just uh, you know a lot of really uh unreliable sectors and um yep it can recover right- them Spinrite tackles them one after another, yeah. and it will work on it until it gets it. And if you want your data back, Spinrite will not give up before you do. Amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to share another one of our sponsors with you, uh, a great company called Rackspace. As you know, I am a big fan of uh, Open. Uh, that's why we do an open-source software podcast. I've ro- always felt that Open is great for a lot of things, particularly encryption. If, you, if you're not seeing the code, how can you trust it? And I think most of the web, uh, I'm pleased to say, is moving to open. But there are cloud providers, everybody's moving to the cloud, of course, who uh, are trying to lock you in, who say, oh, you know, use our proprietary technology. It's better, they say. Is it really better if you're locked in, if you can't move? It's it makes it expensive and complicated to 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 take to it move to another provider, and that's exactly their point. What you want, if you're moving to the cloud, is an open cloud solution built on open standards. Whether it's for your web hosting, your your app engine, for your databases, and what you want is Rackspace, the open cloud company. They co-founded OpenStack, and they are now running the world's largest open cloud company. You can go to Rackspace.com and, and read why open is better. Because they say because you drive the cloud. Find out more about their software as a service hosting, streaming media, the managed cloud. And best of all, you can download the cloud from Rackspace. Free. Rackspace.com slash open. You're going to love Rackspace. 1,400 trained cloud specialists ready to help. They call it fanatical support. And I can vouch for that. It is Amazing. Whether it's email and apps hosting, dedicated hosting, database hosting, a private cloud, that dedicated hardware for your compliance and performance requirements, or a hybrid cloud, or a fully managed Rackspace cloud, Rackspace is the place. Rackspace.com slash open. Download the open cloud now so you have the freedom to move your apps, code, and websites between multiple OpenStack-based clouds, public or private, on-premise or hosted. Build what you want, where you want, how you want it. All backed by their world-renowned fanatical support. Try it today. Free. Download the open cloud. Rackspace. Rackspace.com slash open. We're just now getting oh, we to got time. listener questions. We no, got no, time. no, no, no. Leo, I mean, we, we've had a wonderful podcast so far. We we're have done. An hour no, th- we're an hour doing... and 13 minutes in. Wow. So let's just go until wow. 1 o'clock. 
and that'll still give us an hour and a half of, of podcasts. There's just and a lot to talk about. There is. There was a lot to discuss yeah. this week, and I'm sure everyone's had a good time so yeah. far. Well, we'll get as many as we can in here. Yeah. We love our questions. You can go to grc.com slash feedback, by the way, to get your questions answered for Mr. Steve. And he picks usually around 10. We'll get to as many as we can today uh, yeah. to answer in our listener-driven potpourri number 168. Vince Reimer, Vancouver. <laughs> this is interesting because I have one of these. He wants to know about his nest, hacking his nest. Stephen Leo, enjoy the show very much. Been listening since episode one. Have had success with Spinrite and haven't had one cold since I started on vitamin D. So thank you. This reminds me i got to get my vitamin D for the day. Here. <laughs> I recently brought, bought the super cool Nest thermostat. I have one too, and I bought one for Lisa. I'm buying one for everybody I know. I love these things. I hooked it up, and it wanted to know if it should go online and check for updates. How cool is that, I thought. And readily gave it my Wi-Fi password, assuming it was in an innocent cul-de-sac on my home network. And I got to thinking about the new smart electricity meter that had been installed by the power company with at least the incipient ability to talk to my future internet-savvy fridge and air conditioner via my existing house wiring. I then wondered if it could talk to my smart appliances. And since my Nest knows my Wi-Fi password, have I not created a hole in my home network security? What do you think? I know this is just a curiosity, but you have touched on interestingly edging to edgy topics before, so I thought I'd ask sincerely, Vince. I hadn't really thought about that. I have a smart meter on my... Uh, well, I think there's a lot of paranoia about these smart meters that the utilities are installing. Or is there? Well, I mean, okay, so the the I think the right attitude to take is that everyone is probably trying to do the right thing. Um, there have already been articles about the lack of security of the smart meters. And when I, you know, you could have predicted this. I mean, I'm sure our listeners who've been with us from the beginning, are, when they heard about, you know, smart meters, they rolled their eyes and thought, oh, this is not going to turn out well. Um, and sure enough, you know, they had at least first generation, really crappy security, easy to crack. I mean, I don't know what moron, you know, in this day and age could design something like that that wouldn't be right initially because, again, a lot of these problems we know how to solve. For example, we were talking about the one-time password. It's like no one should invent a new algorithm for that. We've got that. That's done. Just use the one that everyone else is using and you get all kinds of economies of scale. So, you know, don't go reinvent that. Similarly, we know how to how to do security for something like a smart meter. But apparently, for whatever reason, that's not what happened. Um Similarly, the Nest is, I'm sure, designed to be secure. The question is, did they get it right? Because, for example, routers were designed to be secure. And we know how many millions of them are exposing the universal plug-and-play protocol to the public interface, which is totally insane. So there was a mistake. So, so giving the Nest your you know access to your network is probably okay but it's arguably creating an opportunity for their for a problem to be exploited so i know that you're able to access the nest from the internet you can you know get pictures of it you can change your settings you can do things presumably it connects to nest central and then you log into their website 
and there's some communication, but you know that's creating a connection out of your internal network where the Nest exists and we know that it's microprocessor-based and it's smart. And we have seen instances where people are downloading Trojans into people's routers. So you've got the same potential. Again, I don't want to upset anybody or scare anybody. If you, I would say if you hooked it to the Internet to update its firmware, then and it's it always that, online. It's always online. So right. it it's getting the weather from the for my locale. In fact, I'm just uh, I just turned the heat down. It's uh, <laughs> think of it as a little computer, right? It's getting on your yeah. Wi-Fi. I just turned the heat down. I could turn it up. My mom's at home. If she's cold, she can call me. I can say, yeah, I'll turn up the heat, and I can just turn it right like that. She's probably wondering why the why the furnace keeps coming on. Um, <laughs> Leo's at work playing with his new. I'm playing with my toy. So that's why it's online, and yes, of course, getting updates. Um. But I mean, so what I was going to say was, devices get on the network, right? Yeah, what I was going to say was, if you don't use the online features, then take it offline. Just standard security precaution. It's you know, you close the ports you don't need rather than leaving them all open. If it doesn't need to be on the net, if you're not using the, those network-enabled features, eh, then tell it you know, like change your network password so it no longer knows what it is, or erase it from it if if you can do that. So, I mean, that's just what I would do. Um, presumably, they did everything right. But now you're depending upon them to have done everything right. And we know that hackers apparently have a lot of spare time on their hands. Right. Right. And it represents another, yet another target. Most of the, fe- I mean, there's a lot of features of the Nest. A great many of them want to be online. Yeah. I mean, it really... Well, and I mean, you know, and, and, and Leo, that was on purpose. I mean, that was... How how are you going to sell... What is it, $300 or something? Yeah, I mean, it's not... Yeah. I, I've, I've got one, too. It's still oh, in do? its box. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I can lock um, it with a numeric locking pin and an allowable temperature range. Well, that keeps the hackers from... That, that keeps the hackers from turning your heat up. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what they're going to do with a nest, to be honest. All they can no, do is turn clear- the furnace on or not. Clearly, when they were trying to leverage a $250 thermostat, they sat around thinking, okay, how can we justify this price? We've got to give this thing features that, you know, just coming out of its ears. Well, and it does. It has some really, yeah. really great feet. It learns. It's got a motion sensor, so it knows when there's somebody in the house. It learns I just like to look settings. at it. It's, it's beautiful. Oh, um, yeah. And, and really, seriously, if they get into my nest, all they can do is turn the heat on or off, and you can't block that um but well, i can no. see no 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 if it knows how to if it's on your network well, they and the they get into it, from it i guess yeah th- well then they have access to your network right right yep. right, right so i mean i'm well, not saying a, that's likely what we it's how about putting it on there. a guest network or a separate uh, you know access point or something like that with that 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 would work yeah. if you if you had a, for example if you had arranged your home so that you had two Wi-Fi systems a a trusted and a visitor Wi-Fi and the visitor Wi-Fi had was strictly had no other access to the other systems in your home then absolutely put the nest That's on, the, on, on yeah. the visitor channel. okay yep okay that's easy enough uh, question number two. We're, we're, we're trucking along here. <laughs> Trey uh, Dismukes in Houston wonders about faked website fingerprints. If someone's running an HTTPS proxy on me, what's to stop them from altering the fingerprints you display on the fly? It seems like this tool would be more useful out of band. 
perhaps an iOS app that will return the fingerprint when I enter the URL. He's talking about your fingerprinting uh, app at right. grc.com. Or even an SMS shortcode I can text to a URL that will respond with the fingerprint. So that's certainly a good point. I do talk about it and address it at the bottom of the page. Um, I ha- I am, everyone should know, I'm hard at work on a next generation solution for this. Um, it's been a big hit. People really like the idea of being able to check for anyone intercepting their their secure traffic. However, there have been problems with, with just sort of confusion. Some people wonder, they worry if the fingerprint is case sensitive, you know, whether the hex being upper case A, B, C, D, and F, um, wait, A, B, C, D, E, and F, whether it matters, uh, that's upper or lower case, you know, it doesn't, and and so on. So I've got something that's it's very cool coming out soon, um, but I've been thinking about this problem of we're relying on a potentially intercepted connection to report on connection interceptions, which is obviously a catch-22. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, wait a minute. What about the EV certificates, the extended validation certs? Because I'm all EV, and my site shows up as green on all the browsers now that support EV, and in fact, they all do. Um, and so I did some, I did some exploring, and it looks like, and I still have to verify this, Firefox and Opera and Chrome on Windows all and probably chrome on mac still adhere to the fundamental principle of extended validation certificates which is that they are special they build into the browser an awareness of which um, certificate authorities root ev certificates are valid for signing and that can't be changed. Unfortunately, Microsoft somehow didn't get the memo. They've completely screwed up extended validation. There are even links that Microsoft has in their knowledge base about how you can make your corporate server come up green. And it's like, oh, no, that's, I mean, it's, now it means nothing. If if non if certificates not issued by EV certificate authorities can be made to show green on Internet Explorer, then IE is broken for for extended validation completely, meaning that it's spoofable. But the point is that the good browsers that have adhered to this cannot be fooled. So the so what this means is if you go to GRC and you're seeing green. There's no way that a proxy can intercept that for Firefox, Opera, and Chrome because they understand that extended validation means what it's supposed to. And so, so that's one thing. The extended validation is something that no proxy, which is intercepting SSL, can spoof. It is unspoofable when it's implemented properly. So that's that's but what that also means if you know that your bank is extended validation all you have to do is see that it's green on one of the good browsers that correctly handles extended validation certificates and you know you're safe. So I'm going to be adding among other things the a display 
for extended validation so that you know if your bank is supposed to be EV so that when you go there, you can see if that's what you're getting, which is a good thing because that will push the use of EV certificates, which are um, you know, substantially more secure for exactly this reason than non-EV certs. Our show today brought to you by Carbonite.com. We'll get to another question in just a moment. And actually an answer to a question we had last week about running 16-bit apps on more modern tip. version yes. of Windows. You can. But uh, first a word from Carbonite. We're talking backup here. And let me tell you something. If you listen to security now and you're not backing up, I don't understand <laughs> where the disconnect is here. You surely know that hard drives die. Spinrite can't save everything. And uh, you surely understand that the best protection is not a hard drive sitting next to your computer, but one off-site. Somewhere, like Steve sends his uh, <laughs> data to his mom. Or kind of an automatic online backup system like Carbonite. Mac or PC, whenever you're online, automatically backing up everything on your hard drive for less than 5 bucks a month per computer. Mac or PC, as I mentioned. And uh, it's encrypted on the way, uses SSL. And if you want to use Trust No One Encryption, Steve's verified this, you can. Of course, as we know, Trust No One Encryption might change some of the features. For instance, one of the things I like about Carbonite is cloud storage. So you can access your Carbonite account on any computer anytime and get your stuff. Or use their free apps for the uh, uh, smartphones and tablets and get your stuff. If you use TNO, you, well, obviously it's encrypted. And so you can't do that. But you get to decide. That's the point. Carbonite is just a great solution. $5 a month. It's about it's $59 a year. Actually, if you if you use our special offer code security now and try it free for two weeks, you don't need a credit card, by the way. Try it free for two weeks. When you sign up to buy it, uh, they'll give you 14 months for the price of two. They're 12, rather. So two free months. They also have plans for small businesses, external drives, and so on. They're all at a flat rate, flat yearly rate, which makes it very affordable. Cloud storage. Encrypted backup, very cool stuff, Carbonite.com. I want you to try it today. Use our offer code security now. You can try it free for two weeks. And uh, if you decide to buy, you'll save big two free months with Carbonite online backup. Leo Laporte, Steve Gibson. I, we could be a little late for this week in Google. Let's do a few more. What do you say? Okay, sure. Yep, for it. Chris Ackerman's in Kortenberg, Belgium. Shares a wonderful tip for... Running 16-bit code on Windows 7 64-bit. Just heard you mention your concerns about running. You use Brief, which is not only 16-bit, it's DOS. <laughs> <laughs> it's real 16-bit. It's real. It's actually maybe, it's maybe 14 or 15-bit, <laughs> Plus a parity bit. The 16-bit programs in Windows 7 on uh, Security Now 399. Best way to do this is to use the XP compatibility mode infrastructure. Now, to do this, by the way, Steve, you have to have Windows 7 uh, professional, the business yeah. version. Yeah. Uh, but install Windows 7 32-bit in the VM instead of XP. Is it Pro or Ultimate? Isn't there an Ultimate also? There's Ultimate will do. Uh, yeah, I think Ultimate will have Ultimate must have it. It has everything. But yeah. the Pro will also have the professional. It was, it was deemed, this XP emulation was deemed a business feature. So you're going to get the high-end business version of, uh, ah. of Windows 7. But he's saying don't use, because so what you're going to get is... Uh, what is it? Virtual Drive, Microsoft's a VM solution, and a window, a copy of Windows XP. But he's saying install Windows 7 in the VM. You could actually do both if you wanted to. 
The advantage to any other VM solution is the programs installed in the VM appear on the start menu of the host as all other programs do, and you only see the program's window. You don't get this big guest OS window. He says, I've been using a 16-bit accounting program like this since the IT department moved us to Windows 7 64-bit some years ago. So he's saying you can run Windows 7 64 as the main OS, use the VM. You could run XP, or you could run, the if you prefer a more modern, you could run Windows 7 32-bit in the VM. And essentially, that gives you a 32-bit window. That's really interesting, too. What I love is that they did it right the way I think it was Parallels who first uh, showed us this. I know that we, that we talked about Parallels years ago. On the Mac, yeah. On the Mac where it just looks like you you have Windows right. sort of like cohabitating right. with your Mac. So it's all you're seeing is the hosted application window sitting there without, you know, the whole you know, for example, I'm still using VMware as my go-to uh, VM manager and it's an environment that encapsulates everything and then you work within it but i love the idea that you could just you know launch an app and sort of behind the scenes it's actually firing up a 32 or a 32-bit os that supports 16-bit apps and then runs the app in that so thank you very much chris i'm glad to know that's possible i i'm sure that's what i'll be doing for my dos apps of course yeah yeah (laughs) yeah you can you can have a command line (laughs) it's okay uh, Jehan Prokachia, or Jehan Prokachia. I have no idea how you pronounce this. You did a good job with that. I, I made it up, but that's okay. No one knows except Jehan how, how much I'm butchering his name. Jehan Prokachia. And his, and, and, and his mother knows. His yeah. mom. Mom's going, but Jehan. He, but she's, she's probably not listening. Why you say your name so bad? He's in Paris, France, and he wonders about Bitcoin losses. I, Leo talked recently about backing up his Bitcoin wallet. What would happen to the overall amount of Bitcoin on the planet if one loses one's wallet? As creation of Bitcoin is limited in volume and time, what will the lot will those lost Bitcoins be allowed to be re- recreated, or are we going to have this kind of coin drain? Thanks for the good job and blah blah blah. I wonder that myself. What do yeah, they do about it, that? You know that this whole recent Bitcoin frenzy that we've been going through the last few weeks has spawned everybody with an opinion about what Bitcoin means. Even Paul Krugman is writing about it in the New York Times. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I tweeted about a a neat article, and I did get a a piece back from a listener who said, oh, Steve, you got it all wrong. Here's a link to somebody who really knows what they're talking about. Read this. And so I've emailed the link to my iPad, so I will probably read it tomorrow. I didn't have time while I was doing the the podcast prep. But uh, because I'm interested in what people think about this. But there is this notion, uh, like a concern, which is valid, which this listener asks about, which is sort of like the evaporation of Bitcoins. Right. Because there is no way to ever recapture Bitcoins which are that which are in wallets that are lost. Lost or drive, hoarded for that matter. I mean if they're if if you know no, there's no, got somebody hoarded, sitting on them. Well, okay, out of circulation. Out of circulation it's, for whatever reason. Out of, out of circulation is different than destroyed. Right. Because if, if it's destroyed, it is gone forever. There is absolutely no way because your entire evidence of your ownership is the, the signed crypto chain in your wallet. I mean, that's what you have that you're trading. That's why so, I use Carbonite. <laughs> I wanna, now, yeah, now we're really talking some value on the hard drive, literally. Well, yeah. And I think that's exactly the point, is when people understand that there is no one you can go to right. to recover your Bitcoins, 
if you lose them, and they're just gone. I mean, it's like burning paper money. If you throw paper money into the fireplace, eh, you can't go to your bank or Uncle Sam and say, oh, gee, you know, I burned a stack of money. And they're going to go, uh-huh, sure you did. But the difference so, is the money supply can be fixed because the bank can print more. You know, there's a huge, true. there's, God knows how many billions of pennies are out of circulation. Uh, but the government just makes, don't worry, we'll make more. You can't right. make more with Bitcoin. Well, and so the, the, the countervailing aspect to that is that you can divide Bitcoin down to microscopic size. I, I really ought to know how many zeros there is. It's like 12 zeros, yeah. you know, point zero 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 of a Bitcoin you're able to, you're able to transact with. So, so I just think this is going to end up regulating itself. People who lose them, oh, well. That's too bad, but the the market will set the value based on the the active trading. So if people are hoarding them, they'll just be out of circulation, and the market won't account for those. This is the this is the complexity of macroeconomics. And, <laughs> oh and, yes, uh, unless you're it's a, no it's no wonder everyone has their own opinion yeah. and a different. If you're not a trained uh, economist, it's it's kind of hard to understand how all of this fiat currency and works and everything. Actually, Leo, I don't think they know either. No, they're making it up. They get degrees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, ma they're making it up. I'm just trying they're to look as through. as wrong as often as they're right. Yeah. Oh, that we know that. In fact, did you see there was a Paul Krugman article uh, about uh, some economists, I think they were at Harvard, who published a paper um, that it was taken as gospel forever after that said that the federal deficit cannot exceed 90% or some disastrous crisis will happen. And uh, and so that, the you know, Congress and everybody, they've been saying, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it turns out they made an error in the Excel spreadsheet. They finally, they didn't want to publish the spreadsheet. <laughs> they didn't want to publish it. Finally, they gave it away. And people said, wait, you got a mis there's a mistake in here. It's like I a, love that peer review. <laughs> like a literal error. And it's uh. become gospel. And it's a, it's a, a typo. I wow. just love this. It was a great and, article. And, and their common sense didn't lead them to the correct to the correct result. They believed their formulas over what their gut well, told them. Exactly. Not only their gut, but uh, evidence. Because, uh, in fact, I think it was the other way around. I think their gut told them, and they wanted the model to match what they thought was the case. Uh, um, and, in, and, in fact, they, they were wrong. And history has proven them wrong. But That's what uh, we call bad science, Leo. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. The article was published uh, April 19th in the opinion section of the New York Times. It's a Paul, Paul Krugman, who is a uh, Nobel-winning economist. He talks about uh, two Harvard economists, Carmen Reinhardt and Kenneth Rogoff. Their paper was called Growth in a Time of Debt. And it said there's a tipping point for governmental indebtedness. Once it exceeds 90% of GDP, economic growth just ends. So, you you know, if you're... You can't owe too much because then it'll just kill it. And then it turns out, well, um, well, uh, we, there was a typo. <laughs> we meant we, in our formula we had we had M four and we meant M five. So yeah. and then they said, but we really never said this ninety percent threshold. And of course, you know, <laughs> they've admitted there there was a little. You know, it's, it's it, math is hard. Yeah, well, economic science is an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Ah, uh, just amazing. Gosh, you know, I, it's amazing we survive as a species. Joe Rodericks, one more. We'll do one more. How about it? Okay. Do you want to pick one from the... There's there's six remaining. 
Uh, oh, there is one. Uh, um, yeah, there's something that I had intended to get to. Where is it? Number eight. All right. Brandon Brimberry. You just like his name. Brandon Brimberry in I am a fan of alliteration. Yes. <laughs> Leo Laporte and Brandon Brimberry wonders about the Butterfly Labs scam. What's the story on Butterfly Labs? I only know about it because I heard it on the podcast. Are they really going to ship their hardware on their website? This is the company that was making um, Bitcoin mining hardware, right? Okay, so uh, let's get the question done, yeah, and then we'll... Then we'll explain. But, but, but the price yes. and the specs yeah. seem too good to be true. Currently, if someone bought the 5 gigahash model on their website, with the current Bitcoin valuation at $274... <coughs> That's not quite the right amount now. Oh, that was last week. We had that a, was last week, A little bit of crash. And the current oh, that, difficulty that, that, level in coin mine, minting uh, rate... rate that that minor, was an hour ago. Yeah, it was an hour ago. That, that miner would make around $900 a month. What's your opinion? Are these boxes going to ship? Is the whole company a scam? I ordered one. So your opinion is very important to me. Also, I think they're shipping. I think they started shipping this week. Also, I, I thought I read that. Also, I noticed on their site they take PayPal and Bitcoin. But that's like the snake eating its own tail. I like the Bitcoin idea, but it just dawned on me. If they never plan to ship any hardware and they take Bitcoin, hey, there's no governing power to give Bitcoin buyers their Bitcoin back. Says Brandon Brimberry. Bitcoin miner. What do you think? Okay. So here's the deal. Um, I have no information right. about like what the future holds. What we do know is in the past, they have been real. They have shipped FPGA-based high-performance bit mining boxes. Lots of people are using them and very happy. That's why their credibility for their announcement of a super galactically, screamingly fast ASIC-based bit mining box held so much sway. So what they've done is they've gone from FPGA, Field Programmable Gate Arrays, where you basically take a generic software configurable hardware, you know, an, F an FPGA, they were using that for to outperform the GPU, the graphics processing unit based Bitcoining mining hashing systems. Then they said, okay, we've pushed FPGAs as far as we can. The way to really make screaming mining machines is an application specific IC, meaning we're going to design our own integrated circuit from scratch. Now, is that hard to is, do? Well, it's another, yes, it's another scale of difficulty. All kinds of things can go wrong. Mm. So it may have been too great a stretch for them. Apparently, from because I did do some some poking around when I saw Brandon's question, because I should, I should also mention this is representative of many of our listeners who are wondering if Butterfly Labs is a scam. Well, I even see uh, on the on the Bitcoin forums some considerable chatter about that. Oh, huge amount. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And 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 I have to say, um, I was in a position once. Uh, I was going to ship Spinrite three. Um, Spinrite two existed. I announced Spinrite three. We sent out the upgrade announcement, um, and just as I was getting ready, Microsoft released DOS six which incorporated compression in the OS, which Spinrite was completely incompatible with. And I thought, well, I can't ship it. That was a nightmare. I remember that compre oh, OS-based compression. Leo. 
Oh, what a nightmare that was. It was a disaster. But yeah. for me, it meant <laughs> Thanks, that I had, I had all this money from people who desperately wanted Spinrite 3, and uh -oh. I never shipped it. Yeah. I shipped Spinrite 3.1, but I was, I was six or seven months late. Right. We kept offering people their money back, and they said, I don't want my damn money back. Just give me I this program. Yeah. And, but I, I couldn't ship it if it was going to be incompatible with DOS. Right. So anyway, I will never again. I mean, I learned my lesson. I, you know, the, my column in InfoWorld was suspended because people were saying, how can Steve be writing a weekly column if he hasn't, you know, shipped Spinrite? It's yeah, like, get, yeah. Get to work, Steve. That's a, that's a good point. <laughs> so, so, so my, my gut says that these guys just got in over their head. They, apparently they it have a delayed. backlog. It's delayed, right? Of oh, seven months. Oh, okay. Apparently seven months. It's not months. shipping. Now, I was mistaken. Something else was shipping. Some other Bitcoin. So seven, yeah, well, there is, there's like, is it Axiom? It's a, that's, it's an that's the one that shipped, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's a nice looking unit, but this thing outperforms axioms. So if these guys can get it out the door, and and I mean, I'm sure somebody if 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 I'm surprised they're not communicating better. They ought to be better communicators. I have I saw somewhere that they had thirty five thousand units back and on Ooh. back order. Now were they uh, taking the money? Yes. Oh, see. The thing yes. on a pre-order to well, do is to say, we'll to, get your order, but we won't charge you. Yeah. Well, they probably needed the money. Yeah. They were I mean, financing the, uh, the research. Finance the yeah. development yeah. of this. Yeah. So, so my, my That's what sense Kickstarter is, is for. Yeah. My, my sense is these, these guys are probably real, but they are probably in trouble. They, I have a, a, a feeling that they're not sleeping. I wasn't sleeping either when yeah. I was, yeah. you know, really un, under the gun. Well, that's because you're uh, honest. Who knows? Whether they're yeah, sleeping, yeah. I just, I, I guess, I want to believe that they're okay. I don't have any specific knowledge, but there, mu it must be that that there have been journalists who have interviewed the executives to get the whole story. Um, so the whole story must be available somewhere, but I, I, I don't have it. I just know that when they get this thing out, if they do, this the app, the ASIC approach raises it to the entirely next level. Of, of hashing performance. But somebody has to design this integrated circuit, and it's non-trivial because it's application-specific. Oh, I mean, you're yeah. building it into it's, the silicon. It's way, way, way easier today than it was 10 years ago. You know, there's all kinds of engineering support. They can take their designs, and there's there's automation to, to, to create it, you know, maybe. And the problem is when, when you get your first builds, maybe there's some bugs in right. the chip. There may be some mistakes right. that all of the simulations you ran didn't reveal until you actually had it. So I just think they're probably really, you know, behind the eight ball and doing everything that they can to get this thing done. Just ask Jerry Ellsworth. She knows how yep. hard it can be. <laughs> hey, uh, Steve, the Leaf Blower Brigade has arrived, so I think this would be a good time to uh, wrap things up. Uh, Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. That's his website, and that's where you'll find... Uh, Oh, my gosh, so much stuff. First of all, Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, now in version 6. Uh, so those version 3 days, they're long gone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, so is, uh, so is operating system-based hard drive compression. <laughs> Thank God. What Microsoft didn't realize is hard drive capacities were going to increase vastly. You didn't need to compress the hard drive. It was because they were doing it because there was a commercial program. I'm trying to remember the name of it that did it. Remember that? Theirs was double space. Double space. And stack. 
Stack uh, was the big one. And yep. so Stack started doing it. And Micro said, oh, we better do it. Yep. Double space and Stacker. 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 Yep. Oh, boy. Remember those days. Bad old days. They made drives so unreliable. Uh, anyway, uh, when you get to GRC.com, there's all sorts of free stuff you can check out, including, of course, this show, 16 kilobit audio and transcriptions available there. We have full bandwidth audio video as well at twit.tv slash SN for security now. And, of course, you subscribe. if you subscribe, you can get those on, uh, on demand every uh, time there's a new episode. iTunes and all the other places have it. Um, when you have a question for Steve, don't ask him uh, in the email. Send it to just go to GRC.com slash feedback and fill out the form there. That's the only way you'll get him to respond. And he does it by answering these questions. We have others. Maybe we'll just use it next time. Do you know what yeah. you're going to do next week? Uh, I don't yet, but I'm sure. I mean, there's so much going on no that uh, I have a whole backlog of things to talk about, but something may come up in the meantime. So we'll just play it by ear. I'm sure we'll have uh, a good podcast. We'll talk next week, every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC for GRC and Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Security now.